this morning our scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 1. We'll be reading the entire chapter, Revelation chapter 1. revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who is, who, who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. While I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Well, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Be not afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John in a time of persecution. Verse 9 tells us that uh, John suffered and the church suffered. John was, I believe, an old man at the time this book was written. He was exiled on uh, the island of Patmos. It was a rocky island about 100 kilometers offshore from Ephesus. And Ephesus was located in uh, what we would call Turkey today. It's the Roman province of Asia. So John was writing to seven churches in this Roman province of Asia. The Romans persecuted these churches. And how much depended on which emperor was in power at the time, and it could also vary with time. An emperor could change uh, his attitude during his rule. The emperor was ruling in Rome. That was about a thousand kilometers away. And they didn't have phones. They didn't have internet. They didn't have fast traveling news. You can be sure that as things changed in Rome, people wanted to know what were these changes that were coming. They'd have their ear to the ground, so to speak, to listen. What is next from Rome? If they've even exiled the Apostle John, what is coming next? Now that's not the first time, and it wasn't the last time, that a government turned from tolerance of the church to persecution. And you might be thinking today that we're living in times that are potentially changeable. You might have your ears open to understand the times and to listen for words of the governments of our day. What could be coming next? And how do these things fit in with the idea of Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If he has all authority in heaven and earth, can he let his church suffer persecution? Can the people that do this go unpunished or unopposed? And if he's promised to build the church so the gates of hell will not prevail against it, why, for example, at this time, did it appear that the church was at risk of being destroyed? Or if not destroyed, reduced and cut down instead of growing. So the Lord gave his church this book at that time to, so the church would know how to respond to some of these questions. And what this book does is it kind of pulls back the curtain so that you can take a little glimpse into what's happening in heaven. And there are a number of those glimpses in this book. And what those glimpses show is that Jesus is on the throne. And in fact, the things that are happening, sometimes terrible things uh, for the church, are directly related to his government in heaven. Well, we're going to be looking at the first of those glimpses this morning. And that's in the second half of this first chapter of Revelation. That's what will occupy our attention. And our theme is going to be Christ's presence in purity and power. And we're going to look at this in three stages. And it's like peeling back the onion 
we're going to look at the whole second half of the chapter three times. And the first time, we'll be looking at how this is revealed by vision, Christ's purity and power. The second time through, how it is supported by prophecy. And then we'll go again. How is this experienced by his church? Before we get into it, I want to ask you a question. And that is, when someone is in trouble, what does he look for? Imagine somebody is being robbed and he calls for the police. Why would he call for the police? What's so special about them? Well, the police have two important ingredients. They have the power to deal with crime and they are also sworn to uphold the law. They have an interest in doing what is right and good and just. And I'm rolling that idea of goodness and justice into the word purity uh, today. So that policeman has power to deal with the situation and the purity to seal, deal with it rightly. Okay? Power on its own, that's what a robber has. And the person who's being robbed, he might have a great respect for what's right and good, but it doesn't help him if he's powerless to defend himself. So that's why we speak of power and purity and why this vision in Revelation 1 is a great answer to the questions that the Christians of that time might have had. And you can see how that fits in. The Roman government here is powerful. It's persecuting the church. And regardless of how good the church may be, how pure uh, her intentions or her love of law may be, that does not help the church. They need someone to come in, someone who it turns out is like Christ. So we're going to look at this second half of chapter 1, and it presents Christ in this way using symbols. This is uh, a prophecy, and often symbolic language is used. There may be a little bit of discussion that different interpreters have about how to interpret aspects of this prophecy, but we're not going to worry about the details. We're looking for the big picture, power and purity. The introduction to this is in verse 11. That's where I'm going to start. Um, Christ calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what he's doing is he's alluding to Isaiah. Isaiah 43, where Christ says, Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. This vision is a vision of the Lord God of Israel. That's who it is. And he has revealed himself in Christ. But this God of Israel, when you think back to that, he always showed himself strong on behalf of his people and for his own glory. If you know the history of Israel, there were centuries and centuries of opposition by Satan to the coming of Jesus Christ. But God was powerful and well-motivated for the righteousness of his people to take on human flesh at the right time and take on the sins of his people and die on the cross for them. So we could say the Lord God of Israel 
demonstrated himself to be powerful and pure historically. There can be no question that this is who he is. But we're going to look at these two aspects, purity and power, in, uh, in two separate pieces. First, purity, which is going to run through very quickly. Verse 13, there's a man clothed with a garment down to the feet. And that garment down to the feet is a word. It's a single word in Greek. Uh, it's an unusual word. It's unique in the New Testament, but it's not unique when people would hear the Old Testament read in that language. Uh, that is the word for the clothing of the high priest. So what do you think of with a high priest? Of course, it's holiness and purity. This is the one who's going to enter into the presence of God once a year. Verse 14, Christ's head and hair are white, and we always associate whiteness with purity. Uh, there's also great age here, and there's a correlation that there's long life preserved for those who are holy and pure. Verse 14 as well, his eyes are like a flame of fire. We know that the Lord is of purer eyes than to behold evil, but this seems to go even further. If your eyes are a flame of fire, anything impure is going to be burned away before you. That's how this seems to be uh, portraying Christ. Down in verse 16, his face is, that's not verse 16, yes it is. His countenance is like the sun, shining in its strength. So the sun, we also associate with cleanness and purity. It bleaches things. Uh, it cleanses things, and Christ's face is called strong sunshine here. Okay? It cleanses in the direction it's pointed. It causes darkness to flee. So this is just very quickly at a surface level, purity. Okay? We also have power. Going back up to verse 13, the golden band, the golden belt, that's probably best understood as the belt of a king. It wasn't a functional belt carried down low where people would hike up their clothes into it to do their work. The king's is higher up. He's sitting normally. It's ornamental. And this one is made of gold. So the fact that he's sitting wearing it up here means he's a king. He's got power. Gold means he has resources at his disposal. Verse 15. His feet are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Um, Pure refined brass is strong. You think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, clay and iron mixed and weak feet. This is not the case here. Strength, the ability to trample down enemies. Verse, 15, uh, verse 15 as well, a voice like many waters. And there are different allusions in the Old Testament to the God whose voice is like many waters, but it's always showing his power. Sometimes it will be that he speaks, and there are cataclysms happening. There's rain and wind and lightning. Uh, and we saw the same in Christ himself, that even the wind and the seas obey him, because that is true power that the Lord has. In verse 16, there are, are two aspects. Uh, there's the power to uh, preserve and the power to destroy, the power to protect and the power to cut down. He holds in his right hand the seven stars. And that is the messengers of the churches. He's able to protect the messengers of the churches by holding them 
in a strong hand. But also out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword, and this is not for fine work. This is a large broadsword that they would use in battle. They use it for cutting down enemies. So this is the picture that's being presented here. And finally in verse 18, uh, I have the keys of Hades and death. The keys of hell and death. And there's no greater power that you can have than to commit someone to death and hell or to deliver someone from death and hell. So this is at a high level, the first pass through. Christ is pure, he's righteous, but he is also powerful. Is he equal to the challenge of the Romans? Yes, he is. He's powerful, he's also determined to defeat evil. So people can put their mind at ease if they are concerned about this, that the Lord will protect his church. And this is not only for the church of the first century, but the Lord has revealed himself so that now we can put our mind at ease. That we, we don't need to worry today about the outward things that appear to be happening to the church. The answer to ungodly power lies in a greater, pure power of Jesus Christ. He stands against Let's say he stands above the things that ungodly people may attempt to do to his church. He's not intimidated by those. He sits at a level of his own with a power of his own and a purity that is his own, a righteousness that is his own. And so not all is as it appears to be when we see what appears to be a mighty power opposing the church. When we pull back the curtain in heaven, we see actually the picture is very different. So this gives us peace of mind if we trust in Christ. But this description that's used in Revelation 1 is not a new description. It's an old one. It's by way of reminder that God uses this description to speak to his people. So we're going to go back and look at this again from the standpoint of prophecy. Christ's presence and purity and power is revealed by the vision, but it's supported by prophecy because this vision, key aspects of this vision, take our minds back to the Old Testament where these same kind of pictures were used. The use of uh, uh, the quoting of prophecy here does a couple of things. One is that it reinforces what was said in the Old Testament. God has his purposes and his plans and his statement of how things are. And he's saying these things have not changed. But the other thing it does is it takes your mind back to, in this case, the book of Daniel, where these prophecies came. And it encourages you to think about the things that surround those prophecies. So that's what we're going to do. We're going back to Daniel uh, 7. First of all, Daniel 7 verse 9. That's where the Ancient of Days is described as having this garment as white as snow and hair like pure wool. Well, what's this prophecy about in Daniel 7? It's a prophecy 
of four kingdoms. And the kingdoms are Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Rome, the same Rome that this Roman province belongs to, where these seven churches are situated. Daniel 7. The thrones are put in place. The ancient of days, God himself sits down to judge and he judges. The beast is destroyed. His dominion's taken away. And instead, it is given to the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then several verses down in verse 18 of Daniel 7, the saints will receive the kingdom, won for them by Christ. So great news. This is the prophecy. This is the truth. The saints will receive the kingdom. And in fact, it goes on in verse 19, the next verse. Daniel asks specifically about the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. And he's told that it will persecute. He's told that the saints will be in this kingdom's hand for a while. And yet, they will receive the kingdom. So what's going on here? In Revelation 1, Christ appears as the Lord of Daniel 7. He's asking the church, think back to what I said in Daniel 7. I warned you this was going to be happening. You shouldn't be surprised. You're going to be in the hand of this kingdom. You need to be prepared for trouble. Terrible trouble specifically from the kingdom of Rome. So church of the Asian Christians to whom John wrote, understand. Things are going according to the word of God. They're going according to God's plan. And this reinforces that message of Revelation 1. Is Christ on the throne? Is he concerned about the good? And yes, he is. He has that power to direct all things. And the opposition of the Roman government is not an indication that Christ has lost, its, lost his power. It's an indication that God's word is being fulfilled. God has his own purposes. He's working out. But his word is being fulfilled. He spoke it beforehand. He's bringing this to pass to accomplish his own purposes. Christ is on the throne. It wasn't comfortable for God's people to be suffering persecution. It's painful. It's difficult. But they could receive comfort by knowing that the Lord had foretold this would happen and that they would receive the kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus conquers. So the Lord spoke very clearly and specifically about the situation in Rome. And God didn't want to give them a different answer than he gave them in Daniel. It's the same answer. The church needs to live by faith in God's word. We don't live by sight. We live by faith in this time. And in a sense, you could say, what is God saying to his church? Don't panic. Live by faith. 
The other main quote is from Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6. Here's the man clothed in linen, his waist with gold, his face like lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, and so on. Daniel 10 tells us how bad the situation can become. Daniel saw the vision. He just saw the vision of it, and he fell down with his face to the ground. But some things happen in Daniel 10. There's a messenger sent. He touches Daniel. He encourages Daniel. He strengthens Daniel. Why is the church told about this? Well, this is not just for Daniel. The church is to understand they, when they go through persecution, they are going to be touched by the Lord. They're going to be strengthened by the Lord. They're going to be encouraged by the Lord. Okay? That encouragement from Daniel 10, fear not. Peace be to you, but be strong. Yes, be strong. These visions in Daniel, they go on. The, uh, the latter half of Daniel is a whole series of visions, uh, many of them interconnected. Uh, in chapter 11, it talks about in detail that's the next chapter after 10, the activities of these kingdoms. It says many of understanding are going to fall to refine and purify them and make them white until the end. So there's an indication in Daniel. These things aren't just going to go away overnight. The instant that they appear, God's going to make them disappear. He says they're going to continue until the end. Chapter 12, verse 1 speaks of times of trouble such as never was before and at that time God's people will be delivered so what was God saying it's going to be bad very bad but endure because the kingdom belongs to the saints God will give them the kingdom everyone found in the book will be delivered so they show Christ can overcome Rome's power. He will overcome the power of godless governments, but also there's going to be suffering and terrible suffering. And these are not incompatible ideas. They go together. And we might think the world needs to go down for the church to go up. That's not how it works. In Christ's kingdom, he builds his church, despite the world seeming to be very strong. So Asia had this prophecy, these churches in Asia, specifically for them. It spoke specifically of Rome. These churches in Asia needed to live by God's word. What's the prophecy for you? What's the prophecy for Bowmanville and the Canadian government? Or whatever governments, Ontario, municipal, whatever powers, evil powers there are. Is there anything said to you in the midst of the decline and the uncertainty in this world? We need to understand 
this is not a time where all prophecy is fulfilled much has been fulfilled jesus has come but much prophecy remains jesus will return and we there's prophecy looking forward to that and these prophecies speak about how things will be and some of them go back to the very beginning genesis 3:15 i will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed there's going to be this opposition god has put it there he maintains that opposition evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse scoffers will come in the last days a man of sin will deceive many even the elect will be deceived if it were possible christ said terrible affliction will come men's hearts will fail them for fear these are the prophecies of the coming of the end daniel 12 is still there there will be a time of trouble such as never was then the end will come. It's important to remember the word of Christ about his return and be looking to him for his return. He will make all things right. He is coming. How often didn't Jesus have to remind his disciples, though, to watch and pray? Watch for his return and be praying that they don't get sidetracked. He's assured us those days will not be easy, but if we hope in him, deliverance surely will come. So Christ is pure and powerful. He's revealed this in his vision, but the application of that purity and power to deliver his people from these foreign <coughs> governments that want to oppose the church, that will not come yet. The church will suffer so how does the church experience Christ's power and purity today then if we have to wait for the consummation of all things for the, the correction of everything that's wrong in this world what happens now so that's our third point how is Christ's power and purity experienced by his church so we're going to run through this again. <clears throat> in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 there. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Christ is present with his church. And if you look forward at chapter 2, verse 1, it's he who walks as well in the midst of the churches. He's active in the churches. Christ is present with his church in his purity and power. Let's see how that works. In verses 9 and 10, we begin with the Apostle John. The Apostle John was suffering for Christ's sake, and Christ came to him and revealed himself to him. Christ ministered to suffering John by revealing himself. He's not forsaking his saints in their trials. He is with them. We see this in John. But we're going to see soon it extends to the church. Notice a few things. John made a point in verse 10. This was on the Lord's Day. John didn't have to mention that. Why did he mention that? It's because it is significant. Christ, the Lord, let's say, used the Lord's Day to 
give John encouragement and admonition and instruction. What was revealed on the Lord's day? Verse 10, I heard a voice, a loud voice. Voices speak words. I heard words. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice, which is a little unusual. You don't turn to see words, and it might be just an expression. But uh, prophets received the word by revelation. Sometimes that was vision, but they had to commit it in writing. It was the word of God to his people. And that's why verse 11 says to write down in a book what you see and send it to the churches. So Christ's appearance to John, to minister to John, was not only for John, it was also for these seven churches in Asia. And it was in a different form. John receives a vision. The churches receive the word of God, inscripturated. Even at that time of revelation, new revelation, those churches had to live by the word of God, live by faith in God's word. When would the churches receive the word? It's when they were gathered to hear it. When would the churches gather to hear it? On the Lord's day. So the ministry of Christ in these days of persecution was not only to John on the Lord's day, he came with his word to his people on the Lord's day in his churches. This is as the Lord has done ever since he set Sunday apart. He set it apart when he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. He met with his people, revealed himself to them that day. He met with them again the Sunday following. He established a pattern. He revealed himself on Pentecost as the one who pours out his spirit on the nations. That was a Sunday. Through the book of Acts, the preaching of Christ. It happened on Sundays and afterward. And so here also on the Lord's Day, Christ will take his word to his churches and come to them in his word. So what is the answer? When we look at the world, we see decline, we see uncertainty, we see threats. What is the answer? In one sense, it's to see this vision of Christ high and lifted up, who's going to make everything right. But in a more practical, fundamental sense, the answer to persecution is to go to church. It's to meet with God's people on the Lord's day, have the word of God open to you, where Christ comes to you and he comforts you and he instructs you and he exhorts you. On the Lord's day, you meet with his people. The word is publicly proclaimed. And that word says that Jesus is sovereignly working all things according to his will. He promises deliverance to all who trust in him. So this is how he comes to you, how he helps you. When you have this understanding of the Lord's day, then you want to use your opportunities to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day. You take advantage of what you have. We have a time now where there's much confusion, 
much deceit in the world, much threatening in the messaging of the world, the ministry of the Lord in the gathered church is something to seek every opportunity that you can. So Christ is present with his people. How does he show himself to be present with his people? That flows out of his ministry to his people on the Lord's Day. Now we're going to look at this from a little bit of a different angle as well. Christ speaks to his people first and foremost. He's able to defeat the power of sin in the world. Is he able to defeat the power of sin in the church? Of course he is. But it's important to believe that. And you might ask yourself whether you do believe that. Because it is good news. He's able to defeat the power of sin in the church. Christ is in the business of building his church. To whom did Christ send letters? He did not send a letter to Caesar. He did not send a letter to anyone in the Roman government. He sent letters to his churches because his business is building his church. And again, we might think, oh, opposition to the church needs to go down for the church to go up. That's not how the Lord works. He is powerful. He's able to build his church in the presence of that opposition. And it can be easy to criticize others outside the church knowing that the Lord is going to judge them. He's going to judge their sins. But if you believe in a Jesus Christ who is against sin, he's a Christ who is against sin. He's against your sin too. And you'll be thinking about my calling to be holy as the Lord is holy. Can you stand in the face of such a powerfully pure, righteous God without being humbled yourself, without making your primary concern, I am undone when I stand before this God? This is, in fact, where Christ puts the emphasis in the book of Revelation. When Christ first came, his first coming, what were people looking for? They were looking for a political deliverer. Jesus said, that's not what I came to do this time around. So we look back smugly on the Pharisees. We say they got it wrong. But do we do the same thing? Do we today say Christ is on the throne and therefore these bad things must not be allowed to happen and I'm going to take the law into my own hands to make sure it won't happen. 
I'm going to bend the rules in order to make sure it doesn't happen, to avoid this. Because I am a child loved by God. Would he allow this to happen to me? The church has gone through those times of persecution. We've developed since then. We're past that. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore. Is this how we think? We should remind ourselves. Christ called us to walk in his footsteps, which were footsteps of suffering. And it's going to continue until the end. If you are anxious, if you're despairing about the church and its standing in the world, what is your view of the Savior of the church? Is the building of the church done by someone who's more interested in getting rid of sin in the world or by someone who's more interested in getting rid of sin in the church? Which is God's way? And have you made a God in your image? Have you twisted him a little bit? The Lord comes to his church. It's interesting to read the letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. You can read through them. Nowhere does Christ mention persecution by the Roman government as a problem that the church should have done something about. He cares about the church's purity. He cares not about whether the church has power with the Roman government. He cares about whether the church has power with God. So Christ's power and purity, which will they, will one day judge the world righteously, is not here directed at the world. It's at the seven churches. This is where Christ's righteous kingdom is revealed first of all. It's in his church. His power and purity are a great comfort to those living godly and suffering persecution for living godly. But those things, his attributes are a great discomfort to those who love sin. Because Christ will judge unrepentant sinners. And his work of building his church is to cleanse his church of sin. If we would like Christ to do something about the way that the world is headed, if that's what we like to talk about, is it because we want to change the subject? We're not comfortable talking about our sin, how we need to change how Christ's eye searches us, how we need to repent. Remember, congregation, that this is a picture of our high priest amid seven candlesticks. Where is that picture? You see it in the Old Testament. The high priest's job with the seven lamps was to trim the lamps so they would always give a good light. What is Christ? Your high priest doing, he's trimming the lamps. So you will give a good light. So you will shine a good light. And to encourage that, in every letter to a church, Christ says there is an overcoming that needs to happen. 
It's not an overcoming in a battle against the Romans because the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a battle against your own sin. The Lord will give you victory in that battle. A battle against your own sin. A battle against sin in the church. And the battlefield may change. Things may be more tolerant of the church at times. Things may be less tolerant of of the church at times. But the battle remains the same. Christ calls for you to put to death the old man. To put on the new man. To love and serve him in whatever circumstance he puts you. He will hear you when you repent. He's powerful and he's pure. Not only to destroy those who oppose him, but also to forgive your sin. When you repent and turn to him, he is kind and gracious. He forgives you when you do. He guarantees that. Without his blood, the church cannot be built. He will build his church, even in the face of opposition and persecution. That is how powerful he is. He's not diverted from his purpose by the evil in the world. He will judge them in due time. That will happen. So here's that question. How are Christ's power and purity experienced by the church? It's not in the absence of persecutions. Persecutions will happen. Hard days will come. Very hard days will come. We don't know when. We don't know how bad they will be. They will come. Trust Christ. His presence is with his people through his word. And he calls you to believe his word. The word that speaks grace to you. It speaks of abundant forgiveness to those who repent of their sin and who return to him. So he calls you, gather with his people on the Lord's day. Perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord as you sit under his word, as you're sanctified through the washing of water by the word of God. This is Christ's work. This is how he is present with his people. So be encouraged. It is not dependent on what happens in the world. It's dependent on what Christ in heaven does for you every week and every day. He is pure and powerful and present with his people to make these things happen. And congregation, he is building his church. When his church building work is done, the end will come and it will be the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we sit in very good hands. We thank you again for your word that reminds us that all the powers of this world are nothing. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He turns uh, the king's hand like a river of water, whatever way he wants to. All the powers of this world are subject to your rule and to your reign. 
but there's also nothing you've given us a freedom there is nothing that can stop us from obeying you you've given us your word you've given us your spirit you've taught us who we are before you you've told us of the power of our savior to deliver us from sin and to build us as a church to sanctify and purify us more and more oh lord we pray that you would do that work help us to appreciate what that work is that all the powers of this world all the things that this world has to offer they can be left behind because you have reserved in heaven for us this inheritance that is undefiled and that doesn't fade away that great things are stored up for us because we have been united to Christ and we join him in his kingdom we pray that you will speak to us Sunday by Sunday through the ministry of your word challenge us concerning ourselves concerning our place with you and we pray fill us with your spirit sanctify us enable us to turn from our idols to serve only you help us to live as faithful uh, those who give faithful testimony in this age of your grace because it's by the word of your testimony that the saints overcome and by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, let us know that testimony. Let us uh, have it as a daily reality that every time we sin, we know the greatness of a Savior because we've turned back to him and have been able to have that sin forgiven. Uh, we pray that you would uh, let this daily reality overflow our lives and be present in how we speak in how we behave with each other and with others who may not know you. We pray that you would build your church. And we thank you that Jesus is with us all the way. That he is present in all his power and his purity today, even though the world doesn't see that or recognize it. We can know it to be true. We thank you in Jesus.